981 in the Pew Bibles, if you'd like to follow along there. And uh, if not, it'll be projected on the screen behind me. I do want to warn you, I know some of you came in this morning very expectantly uh, because of last week's PowerPoint, which had yearbook pictures in it. There's nothing like that this week. So, sorry, there's no, no blast from the past. Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through chapter 4, verse 1. Called to stand firm. The Apostle Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let us pray together. Lord, I ask you for help this day. Lord, help me to speak clearly and to think clearly and to be sensitive Lord, to where you lead. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters seated here this morning that, Lord, you would grant us a holy moment from your word. Lord, that our eyes would be opened to the truth. And Lord, whether we are hearing this or are thinking about these things for the first time seriously or whether it be review, Lord, that we would all be built up in Christ. Lord, I pray for any here who have yet to come to faith in Christ. Lord, that this would be the day uh, that the scales fall off their eyes and they see you as you are. Lord, that they would recognize, Lord, the seriousness of their condition apart from Christ, standing, facing the wrath of God for their sins, and Lord, that they would respond in faith uh, to, to what Jesus has done to set them free from the punishment that they deserve, Lord, that they would draw near to you in faith and, and receive the gift of salvation, Lord, that they would be restored to you forever. Lord, do this for their good and for your glory. Build us up, Lord, in you. Lord, that the world would see how great you are by our humble efforts to follow you faithfully. Strengthen us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we begin this morning with, with, with a question, and it's a question that I believe that the Apostle Paul has been answering really for, for, for three chapters now as we have been in the book of Philippians. And, and, and he's used himself as an example, clearly. But, but the question that's been raised and answered and that I'm going to, to seek to answer yet again from God's word this morning is simple. What does faithfulness in the Christian life look like for you and me? What does it mean to be faithful in this fallen world? Now, the relationship between faith and obedience is something that has been the source of confusion for many, really throughout the history of the church. Even in the book of Philippians, already we've seen the Apostle Paul warning the church to reject those who promote legalism. We would refer to them as the Judaizers while at the same time calling the church to press on in faithfulness. Now, when we studied the book of 1 Corinthians recently, we saw the Apostle Paul addressing the problem of licentiousness in the church. And, and licentious, licentiousness, easy for me to say, right? 
simply refers to those who think that the grace that we receive from God sets us free to live however we want to live. Let us sin more so that we would receive more grace from God. And the Apostle Paul clearly denounces that error as well. The, the Bible is clear that salvation is a gift from God that is received through faith, through trust in Christ. And the Bible is also clear that genuine faith will be accompanied by good works. It's the, the proof, the evidence that we genuinely believe. Now, at face value, we would all say, you know what, that's really not hard to follow, Sam. I don't, I don't see what the problem is. But yet, the problem exists, does it not? And, and I believe the, the problem arises typically because of our sinful desires. We want something about ourselves to take pride in so we become legalistic in our approach to the Christian life well then if I do these things then clearly God's gonna be pleased with what a great Christian I am or we want to indulge in the temporary pleasures of sin so we decide to dip our toes in the pool of licentiousness Again, because where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And both of these extremes exist and, and have existed in the church because the temptation is there to, 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 to lose sight of the purpose of our salvation. That has been removed from the equation. Salvation becomes all about us rather than about who we have been reconciled to through faith in Christ. We belong to God now, and, and that's the greatest thing about us. Jesus did absolutely everything that needed to be done and could be done through his life, death, and resurrection to restore us to God. And now our lives should testify to this reality. Our attitude towards sin should change it was our sin that cost Jesus his life. So we begin to realize that that's something that we should learn to hate. Our attitude towards our lives on this earth should change because we understand that there's something greater that awaits us than being simply successful by the world's standards. As we read and believe God's word, we, we come to realize that we were created and saved in order to worship and glorify God because there is not one area of our lives that Jesus does not lay absolute claim to. Now let that sink in. Jesus lays claim to every area of our lives. Now I've mentioned in the past that, that, that my discipleship group is working through a book by Jerry Bridges called The Discipline of Grace. And in our discussion this past week, we, we focused on the importance of being committed to God. You see, the, the problem arises of legalism or licentiousness when we factor out the fact that everything that we do is in relation to God. Jesus died to restore us to God. And so when I sin, I feel guilty, but the, my focus should not simply be on how I feel, but should be on the fact that I have sinned against the God who saved me. Feeling bad is a natural result or should be a natural result when a Christian rebels against God. But how we feel is not the biggest problem in the room. The biggest problem in the room is that we have chosen to worship something or someone, a, a, a feeling, a pleasure when we choose sin over the one who is truly worthy of worship. Does that make sense? And so we, we tend to go to, to, to an extreme when we lose sight 
of the fact that we have been restored to God. It is God whom we honor with our obedience. It is God who we dishonor when we fail. It is God whose grace covers our lives. We're, we're, we're called to be committed to God. And our discussion Thursday night was on that commitment. Committing ourselves to God. Committing ourselves to, to live in a way which glorifies God. And, and part of that way of living is pursuing holiness. Holiness means that our, our lives have that flavor of godliness. We begin to reject our old lives and, and embrace the, the new life we have in Christ. So sin begins to lose its luster and, and, we, and we want to be pure in our dealings with others. But, but the problem is, is that there are plenty, plenty of people out there that, that want to live good and moral lives. And, and we can all do it with some level of success. But, but living a holy life without an eye to the God that is glorified through that life really is of not much benefit to us spiritually. Bridges writes, when we commit ourselves to the pursuit of holiness, we need to ensure that our commitment is actually to God, not simply a holy lifestyle or a set of moral values. That's a, that's a great quote. That's, that's, the, that's the money shot from that chapter. Our commitment is not to a way of life. Our commitment is not to, to what we avoid. Our, our commitment is not primarily simply to a, to a creed or a doctrinal statement, although those things are important. Our commitment, first and foremost, is to God. And that is what keeps us from swinging to the pendulum of legalism or licentiousness. Commitment to God. What a, what a radical idea. This changes everything from our pursuit of holiness to, to how we think about sin and how we respond when we do fail. And, and this focus moves from ourselves and how we feel to God and what he has said in his word. This commitment to God puts Christian faithfulness in a whole new light. We, we come to realize that faithfulness is more than just what we do or what we don't do. But gets to the heart of why we do or don't do what we do or don't do. We, we realize that it's not about vocation, but location. Wherever we are. Our lives must glorify God because God is there also. We cannot escape him, nor should we want to. Martin Luther was a very quotable man from church history, and he sums this up beautifully. He says, what you do in your house is worth as much as if you did it in heaven for our Lord God. We should accustom ourselves to think of our position and work as sacred and well-pleasing to God, not on account of the position and work, but on account of the word and faith from which the obedience and the work flow. So tempting to think, oh, I, I, I can only serve God faithfully if I'm doing this or, or if I'm a, a missionary to another country or I'm embracing this activity. But the reality is, is that because we have been reconciled to God through faith in, Christian, and to, through faith in Christ, everything that we do becomes sacred as we do it unto the Lord. We need to, to understand this and embrace this, brothers and sisters. This morning, as we continue, uh, continue our study in Philippians, I, I want to tackle uh, chapter 3, verses 17 through 4, 1, under three main head headings and then a, a brief conclusion. 
In these verses, first of all, Paul sets forth an example to be followed. Secondly, a danger to be avoided. And, and finally, a reminder of future glory. And brothers and sisters, in all of these things that we see set forth from the Apostle Paul, we find his prescription continued. We began this many weeks ago. His prescription for how we can and should be faithful in this lost and dying world. So please listen this morning with a hunger to honor him in all that you do. An example to be followed, verse 17. I want to read for context's sake because not everyone was here last week. Paul's words in Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 12. He's talking about his desire in, in the first half of chapter 3 to that no matter what, how God uses him or how God ends his life, that, that his goal in life ultimately is he wants to live in a way that when he comes to the end of his time on this earth, that God is honored and that his goal is reconciliation to God forever through Christ. Verse 12, he says, Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul says, listen, I want you, like me, to press on. I want you to, to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I want you, Philippians, to press on to spiritual maturity so that when your life ends, when you look on him with your eyes or until Christ returns, that he has been glorified in the way that you have lived. Now, this statement, his, his desire to press on, really summarizes the example that Paul has set forth in himself up to this point in his letter to the Philippians. Now, I'm going to touch on this again and a little bit later, but, but Paul went through a lot for the sake of the gospel. He, he went through a lot to build the church. Now, I mentioned commitment to God earlier, and, and Paul's example truly reflects that he was committed to God above all else. Remember chapter 1 where Paul's writing about his imprisonment and he, he talks about how God is using it? The only way Paul could take comfort in being imprisoned was recognizing that God was using it for his glory. What does he say? Even the whole praetorian guard is hearing the gospel because I'm here. That's a Godward focus. Prison, whether it's house arrest or, 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 or in the big house, limits our freedom. Paul could not do what he wanted to do. He was a prisoner, yet in that imprisonment, he saw God's hand at work. Only commitment to God can, can enable you to look out and see people trying to torment you by preaching the gospel because they're free and you're not, and you glorify God. That's Paul's focus, right? There, there are some that preach Christ out of goodwill, and there are others that are seeking to torment me because I'm in chains. That's commitment to God. If he was committed to his comfort or committed to his circumstances or even viewing God's favor, which is our temptation to do through the lens of his circumstances, then Paul would have been, would have been a, a miserable wreck. But his commitment was to God and his glory. 
Paul's commitment to God enabled him to say, you know what? I might die from this. I might live. But you know what? If I'm going to live, I'm going to continue to live with an eye to the Lord. And if I'm to die, praise God, because I'm going to be with him. That is commitment to God. Now, let's be honest. That sounds foreign to us at times, does it not? Because I want my life to be easy. But here, Paul sets it up. Listen, follow my example, Philippians. Follow my example, New Hope. Life is hard. Challenges arise. God is always good. Commit yourself to him no matter what the circumstances may be. This commitment to God also later in Philippians allowed Paul to say, you know what, I had a lot of things going for me in life. I was born into the right nation, the right family, had the right job. I had it all going for me. But when I found Christ, when Christ found me, all of that was garbage. Only commitment to God gives you that perspective. And Paul's attitude must become our attitude. It's also, as Paul sets himself and others forth as an example to be followed, Paul reminds us of the importance of mature believers in the church. Several passages where he calls the church to, to look to and to follow examples. Just earlier in, in, in Philippians chapter 2, he set forth Timothy and Epaphroditus, and he says, listen, honor people like this. Honor people like Epaphroditus who risked his life for the sake of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, it is the expectation from Scripture that we all grow into being examples, good examples, for others in the context of the church. No matter what our physical age may be, spiritually, the expectation from Scripture is that we will be maturing in our faith. Verse 17, Paul says, join in imitating me. Become like me as I follow Christ. Now again, Paul is not claiming to be perfect, but he's simply setting himself up as an example of an imperfect person who is seeking to be faithful to his Lord. Paul's goal in life was whether he lived or died to honor Christ in the way that he lived. That's a, that's a simple mission statement, is it not, for his life. And it was put to the test over and over again over the course of his ministry till ultimately it cost him his life. But that, nothing else would do. Paul calls the Philippians and he, and he calls us to follow that example, that phrase, keep your eyes on, on those who... live this way, who walk according to the example you have in us. That keep your eyes on it is the verb form of the Greek word that's translated prize in verse 14, that prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So what you see here is just Paul connecting these ideas. Listen, I'm pressing on with my eyes to the prize, and I want you to keep your eyes on those who are pressing on to the prize because I want you to press on to the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He, he's calling us to, to, to look for and, and follow the example of others who are pressing on in Christ-likeness. Brothers and sisters, do we prioritize our spiritual growth? If we are not we are not being faithful to the call of God on our lives, Christians. And I don't say that to, to heap a burden on you, but to say, listen, there is a better way. 
not always an easy way, but it is the better way. The, the goal in setting forth examples is not to idolize other people. We, we certainly know that that is the temptation in our current culture is, is to take someone who is famous or well-known and, and elevate them to a position that, yeah, I want to be like that guy. That, that, that's not what Paul is saying here at all. What he wants is to, is to challenge the church to persevere in their knowledge of Jesus. Now, we've seen this recently with, the, with, with what appears to be the conversion of Kanye West. I, I, I pray that that is true. What, what, what a great testimony. But brothers and sisters, it was no less of a miracle when you turned to faith in Christ. You were just as guilty and unworthy as he was. Just not as many people knew who you are. And probably still don't. But that's not who you want to come in, someone who has just professed Christ and, and, to, and to teach you the Bible, right? You, you, you would want him to, to grow in his knowledge of God. We'd want to hear his testimony and, and, and be encouraged by that. But, but someone who is standing before and saying, thus saith the Lord, you, you, you want that person to, to have a track record and to, and to be tested and, 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 and to be recognized by the body of Christ as someone who is faithful. Right? And the expectation from Scripture, brothers and sisters, is that we would all be striving to be that type of Christian because we are all examples of some type in the body of Christ. Again, our, our goal is, is to become the type of Christian whose faith is worthy of imitation. We should strive to be good examples. Paul sets this forth and he says, listen, these are the people you should look out or look to as examples because in, in, in verses 18 and 19, he reminds them that there are dangers in the church that must be avoided. Paul continues in verse 18, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. The reality is, is that in the context of the church, local and universal, there are both false teachers and false converts masquerading as Christians. Some don't even realize that they are false converts. But Paul says, listen, there's, this is a danger that must be avoided. It's painful. I've told you, even tell you now, even with tears, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul goes on to describe the effects that these false teachers, these false believers were having on the body of Christ. It is heart-wrenching to, to know someone and love someone and watch them continually not just embrace and be deceived by false teaching, but also promote it to those within the context of the church. This is why we have to have shepherds in a church. We want people to be fed and encouraged and built up in sound doctrine. But the reality is, is that the, 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 the local Christian bookstore is filled with unsound doctrine. I saw a quote from Vodi Bakum this uh, just the other day about this. And he said that there should be a sign on the door of every Christian bookstore that, 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 that the words found in the context of, of many of these books are not approved of by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's humorous, but it is sad at the same time. Because even, brothers and sisters, even those of us who have walked with the Lord for many, many years, it is often very tempting for us to want to be to drawn into something that sounds easier than discipleship. But that is not the Christian life as the Bible sets it forth, brothers and sisters. And it is painful. It was painful for Paul. Can you imagine the, 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 the pain he felt seeing people that he had invested in being sucked into the legalism of the Judaizers? Can, can, can you imagine the pain he felt in Corinth, a, a church that he had poured himself into and watching them turn their back on his ministry. 
And you could go on to any church. Many of the elders in Ephesus turned out to be false converts. It's painful. And so Paul, with tears, apparently has reminded this church over and over again, you need to be on guard. You need to stand firm. Because Satan truly disguises himself as an angel of light. Paul says these people are, are, are enemies of the gospel. They are destined for judgment. They are enslaved to their sinful desires. As he's talking about their gods being their bellies. Other translations say their appetites. I think that uh, really picks up more on what Paul's saying here. Now, None of you guys love food the way I do. So, so maybe you can't relate to that illustration that Paul is using. But as a younger man, when I was in better shape and, and would exercise regularly, that was many, many years ago. It was nothing for me to, to, to whip through McDonald's after class when I was in college or even in high school when maybe I left a little early for lunch and, and decided that I wanted McDonald's. Why? Because even though it is terrible for you, it tastes so good. It tastes so good. And I, I would find myself some days wanting fast food, not giving any thought to, to, to what that could be doing to my body. Why? Because I was running track. I was wrestling. I was doing all these things. And so physically, the outside looked good. But the inside, not so much. But we're drawn to it. I'm still drawn to it. I loved it when I did youth ministry because who doesn't love a pizza party every chance you get? Driven by appetite. Paul says, listen, that, 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 that describes a, a false convert or a false teacher perfectly because they're not drawn to things that, 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 that promote the fruit of the Spirit. They are drawn to things that please fleshly desires. Prosperity theology comes to mind. That is all about filling that bank account. It's worldly. It's not saying no to sin. That's feeding sin. That's greed. So listen, they're, 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 they are enslaved to their sinful desires. They delight in shameful behavior. And they are worldly in their thinking. That's verses 18 and 19. Paul says, be on guard. Watch out for those people. Don't watch out in the, in the same way that you watch the good example. Be on guard. These are dangerous people in the church. Brothers and sisters, it's important that we keep in mind that those who leave the faith initially are indistinguishable from true believers. Let me illustrate that for you. Angela and I were talking about this. As most of you know, we went to, to, to Bible College down in Columbia, South Carolina a couple of years ago. And without a lot of thought this weekend, so many names came to mind of people who are no longer walking with the Lord. These are people that I played on a worship team with. These are people who joined in evangelistic efforts. These are people, some of whom even preached and taught in the context of churches. And if you would have put one of us beside one of them in, in, high, in college, you would have said, oh, well, that Sam, he's a nice enough guy, but he's probably never going to amount to much. But this guy, he's so gifted. He's going to be the next Billy Graham. People are going to come and hear him preach. And now he denies 
the truth. Now, none of that is, is to promote me, but to say, listen, he looked more like Jesus than I did at that point. But ultimately, his desire was not for the Lord, but for the desires of the flesh. It's usually over time that the true nature of a, of a false teacher or a false convert is revealed. That's why Paul is warning they don't come into the church holding up a sign saying, False teacher! Look out for me! No! Sometimes they don't even realize it because of the deception of the evil one. But over time, the truth comes out. It always does. False conversion is a real, is real and it's a danger to the health of the church. And we must examine ourselves and take seriously the call to follow Jesus. Could it be me? Well, where does your faith truly lie? Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that bad company corrupts good morals. And he's not talking about the bad apples that mom and dad warned us about in school when we were kids. He's talking about in the context of church. This is a weighty reminder, weighty warning from the Apostle Paul. Those that stray from sound doctrine infect the spiritual health of the church. So how do we respond? It's a great question, right? Follow the principles set forth in Scripture. If there's someone that is promoting unsound teaching, you lovingly go to that person and you try to instruct them from the Word of God. Hey, what you teach says this, but the Bible says this. You seek to, to disciple and care for. But if they're not willing to be taught, then harder steps must be taken. But brothers and sisters, we must be on guard. As Paul himself said, if, if I or, or another teacher or an even angel from heaven itself comes to you and, and teaches something contrary to the, to the doctrine that you've been received, that, that you have received, then let him be accursed. Those are strong words. But the health of the church depends upon being committed to biblical teaching. Sound teaching. And so here in these first few verses, Paul has set forth a contrast. The, the good example to be followed, the, the type of believers that we want to be, and, and what we should be on guard against. And, and then in verses 20 and 21, he reminds us that there's a, a, a future glory. The, the, the false convert, the, the false teacher is, is destined for destruction. Verse 19, but for the believer, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This idea of, of being mindful of what awaits us, it's an important doctrine, it's an important approach that we must embrace if we are to be faithful in this fallen world. Why? Because life gets hard. It's hard to press on in faith because we face trials. We're tempted. We fail. We fall short. This world, by the fact that we still live in it, is going to challenge what we believe. And so we need to understand that there's, there, 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 there's more tools in the toolbox that, that God gives us in order for faithfulness. And a key one is a, mindful, a mindset on what is to come in Christ. Because we need constant reminders of what awaits us. 
And reminders also that God will reward faithfulness in this life. We need more than platitudes when we talk about what is to come. We need expectation that is grounded in faith and the truth. We live here, but Paul reminds us that we are citizens of a greater kingdom and our king is coming soon. Now again, we contrast this to the fate of the apostates in verses 18 and 19. The, the, in contrast to destruction, the future for believers is the promise of complete transformation at the return of Jesus. Now, the Bible tells us that we live in a time where the power of sin has been broken in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin because through faith in Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we've received, that power and, and the curse of sin, which is eternal death, those things have been broken. But we live daily with the effects of sin, do we not? Yes, we do. We still have those desires. We still get irritable when we're tired. <laughs> We still love things that the Bible calls us to hate. Those are the effects of sin. But Paul reminds us here that, that there is a day that is coming that, that not only will the power of sin be broken, but the effects and, and, and the limitations of sin will also be done away with. Glorified bodies that only desire that which is honoring to the Lord. I don't know about you, but when I think seriously about eternity and, and the future that awaits, one of the things that I am most excited about is this body of sin and death being done away with. I want the new model. Because even when I desire the things that I ought to desire. Temptation is always close at hand. Always. I kid you not, I, I have shared the gospel with people and at the very next moment been tempted with the ugliest thoughts. I wanted to gauge, engage in gossip or slander. Out of the same mouth, blessing and cursing. I want the upgrade. Don't you? Don't you, don't you long for the day when your every thought about God will actually begin to measure up to who he actually is? Don't you long for the day when you can look at that person worshiping next to you and only give praise for what God has done in their lives? Don't you long for the day where we're no longer subject to, to, to fatigue and irritability? Don't you long for the day when the words that come from your mouth glorify God fully. I do. I do. It gets hard. And this is not a, a, a glory that, that we earn, but it is what we receive because of what Christ has done. It has been secured through Jesus' faithfulness and power in our lives. It is all a gift of God's grace. John Piper writes a lot about what he calls future grace and what he means by that really ties into what we looked at last week. You know, Paul talks about forgetting those things that lie behind and, and pressing on to what is in front of him. This idea that God's grace for yesterday was great, and, but it reminds us that he's always faithful. We, we can't rest simply in what he's done. We need his grace for today. We need his grace for tomorrow and the next day. Listen to Piper. He's getting up there when he writes this. He says, The only life I have left to live 
is future life, what's in front. The past is not in my hands to, to offer or alter. It is gone. Not even God will change the past. Some of us need to hear that. All the expectations of God are future expectations. And, and by future, he doesn't mean 10 years down the road. He means the next moment and 10 years down the road. All the possibilities of faith and love are future possibilities. And all the power that touches me with help to live in love is future power. As precious as the bygone blessings of God may be, if he leaves me only with the memory of those and not with the promise of more, I will be undone. My hope for future goodness and future glory is future grace. God pouring out his undeserved kindness upon us. Brothers and sisters, that is how we must live the Christian life. Paul has, has, has pointed us this morning to, to, to the greatest of future graces that we're going to experience when, when we see him face to face, the God who brings into subjection all things under his feet. But we need his grace in the next moment. You're going to need his grace when you sit at lunch across from a friend or a loved one in order to, to, to be the men and women and and young people that God has called us to be. Think about that. The past is great in as much as it leads us to worship. The future calls us to faith. And faithfulness. A call to faithfulness, chapter 4, verse 1. Paul concludes, therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You hear his affection for the church? I love you guys. I, I long for you. you. You bring me joy. You're my reward in heaven. Stand firm. What is at stake is real and it is serious. And Paul calls us to faithfulness as well. A key motivator for us remaining faithful now is found in the promises of God's word and his unending grace towards us, his children. It's not found in your ability to figure it out on your own or to talk your way out of it. Faithfulness is found in knowing and believing and acting upon the promises of God's word dependent on God's grace. Brothers and sisters, we can follow the examples of Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and other faithful believers because we share the same Lord, the same Father, the same Spirit. We share the same grace, and we have access to the same promises that empowered their faithfulness. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? We... I don't preach from the Bible because it is a book in a long list of books that I could choose from. This is the Word of God. It contains the words of life. Through it, we come to know who God is. Through it, we learn of the seriousness of our sin. Through it, we learn of the Savior who gave His life to restore us to God. Through it, we receive great and precious promises, not just of what is to come in eternity, but what we can experience in this life. We're reminded time and again that our Savior's orientation towards those who believe is one of compassion and kindness and a desire to see us honor Him with our lives. But we've got to know what it says. We've got to, to act on what it says. We've got to believe what it says. We 
can and should live lives that speak to this lost world about how awesome it is to know God, how awesome it is to be redeemed through Jesus' faithfulness. It's not perfect obedience. We're not going to reach perfection in this lifetime. I'm not pushing legalism this morning. What I am pushing is a new set of priorities which prioritize our commitment to and our relationship with our God. Close with one more quote, this time from Spurgeon. I would recommend you either believe God up to the hilt completely or else not to believe at all. Believe this book of God, every letter of it, or else reject it. In the 90s, the rappers would say there's no half-stepping when it comes to this. We commit fully, or we should not commit at all, because there is no plan B. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this call to faithfulness from the Apostle Paul. I thank you for examples through church history. I, th- I thank you, Lord, for the examples in this church of, of those who have stood firm under trial, those who are c- consistent witnesses to your goodness and your mercy. And, and Lord, I pray that we would all be that for one another, that we would recognize that, 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 that such examples aren't just for a, a special class of Christians, but you call us all to follow you faithfully. And we know it is an imperfect following and that it is only because of, uh, of the grace and the kindness that you have shown us, O oh Lord. But Lord, those that know you want to honor you and would you help us grow in that and to be the examples that we ought to be. Lord, for, for some here, what I've shared might sound completely foreign. And, and Lord, I, I pray that, that you would dispel any false uh, beliefs about, about the gospel and about what you call us to as your followers. Help us to see, Lord, that those outside of faith in Christ can do nothing to remedy the problem of sin and are deserving of, of eternal damnation. We, we can only respond in faith to the faithfulness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Lord, dispel any ideas of, of working for salvation or somehow deserving salvation or earning salvation, but, but open their eyes to their complete inability to come to you apart from faith in Christ. And for the rest of us, Lord, help us to be faithful, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.